Mark chapter four, why don't you turn with me? Mark chapter four. Fast-paced, hard-hitting, the gospel of Mark. Man, we're just blazing through the story of the gospel. That's the thing you get. Because it's such a short book, it's powerful, packed full of you know, truth. And you know, we have here uh, the parable now of the sower and of the seed uh, that we saw also in Matthew's gospel. Um, and so let's dive right into this and see the, uh, the, the, the message that Jesus gave us. It's very similar to the one in Matthew. Take a look, verse one. It says, and he began to teach by the seaside and there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. Do you ever wonder if Jesus knew so much that we don't know, like things like the science of why sound bounces off water so clearly? Have you ever been on a lake and you're out on a boat or something and, and you can hear people in the boat like a mile away on the same lake. And you're like, it's like they were just a few feet away and you can hear them talking and it has to do with temperature uh, and what have you, the way sound travels and all this stuff over the water. Uh, it's kind of a cool science. If you look it up, there's all kinds of stuff. But you know, here's Jesus with no sound system. Uh, the multitudes are pressing in. If he gets too surrounded by people, the first 10 people would be able to hear him. But after that, uh, you'd lose him. But Jesus gets into a boat and pushes off into the sea. Now, now, by the way, the Sea of Galilee, for us Oregonians, we might say the big lake of Galilee. Uh, it's, it's not even really that big of a lake. If you're from Montana, it's a mud puddle. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is tiny. Um, and uh, it, it's, so, it, you know, don't picture this huge, you know, oceanic type of sea or whatever. And the vessel was probably a small boat and he pushes out and you, you can kind of picture how this works the sound of his voice reflecting off the shore there onto the people that were on the, the, the beach. What a cool setting for this message. And it's one that he wants the people to hear. Uh, how do I know that? Well, check this out. It goes on in verse two. And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them uh, in his doctrine, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. Now, right there, he begins, um, and you have to understand, this is the, the same way if we were to talk today, we'd say, okay, everybody listen, tune in here, you know, turn on your thinking caps as your, you know, elementary school teacher used to tell you. Like, this is something that's of great importance, so listen up. He says that twice. That's why this parable, I wonder if this parable, do you think this parable might be more important than other parables? Um, and I'm gonna leave that question hanging uh, because I think that question will be answered perhaps uh, as we read this. So, he, but he does say twice, hearken, uh, which means tune in, listen up, behold, which means to listen, but also understand. That's the word there. In fact, let's jump ahead to verse nine before we keep going. It says at the end of his parable, verse nine, he said to them, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Um, is Jesus into people hearing this little parable? Three times in only, you know, a few sentences, he's gonna say, listen, tune in. If you have ears to hear, listen. I mean, this, so this is something that we should really take note of because it's of great importance. Well, he says in verse three, hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth and immediately it sprang up 
because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and it did yield fruit that sprang up some, uh, and, and increased and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100. And he said unto them, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, that they were about, uh, about with him, the 12 asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive. And hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So here it is, the parable. Uh, the disciples asked him about the meaning and he's gonna go into that here in a second. But Jesus says something here that might shock you unless you heard our teaching a few weeks ago about election. Why would Jesus want some people to hear this teaching and let it bring forth good fruit? And why would he conceal it? Why does God conceal things in his word? Have you ever thought about that? Um, the Lord does conceal matters in the scriptures. I'll show you more about that in a second. But um, he, he almost speaks in sort of encrypted terms. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing. Uh, what, we, what we do here is we have sort of the, um, the idea that there's some people God wants to hear and, and be saved. And there's others that he know that they won't tune in. They won't care enough to listen. And so they won't get the good fruit of the seed of the word. Um, and he, he calls that out kind of an interesting part of this story. Um, but uh, in, in verse 13, he goes on, it says, and he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. That's the number, the first condition of the, of the soil and the seed. The second condition is verse 16. These are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately received it with gladness and have no root in them, uh, in themselves. And so endure, but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. The third condition talked about here is verse 18. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And then the fourth condition, verse 20, and these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So we have this parable where Jesus tells the parable and then he interprets it. This is kind of fun when we see Jesus actually interpreting the parable because some parables you kind of are left to interpret it for yourself. 
Um, but this one, he goes into it pretty de- uh, detailed. You know, we have the, 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 the sower of the seed, which is the Lord. We have the seed itself, which is the word of God. Uh, and the soil is the condition of man's heart, the, the soil itself, um, which is kind of funny if you know the biblical connections to the earth and we were made of clay and our, but dust and all that stuff. There's a link here and uh, all kinds of things in the Bible and all these things, but, um, but the heart of man, the heart, the heart of man, what type of soil? And we, we saw when we were in the gospel of Matthew, there were four hearts or soil types uh, there was the fouled up heart we talked about. Remember where the birds of the air uh, came and, and uh, what were the birds of the air? Anybody? Hello? Somebody, one person said it back there. Yeah, Satan himself, the fowls of the air, Satan. And maybe you might include his demons and what have you. So the fouled up heart, that's just a little played up on words there, just in case you were wondering. Uh, number two, we have the shallow heart or stony heart where there was no root taken. The stone kind of kept stony ground, uh, you know, didn't allow the, the word to take root. Uh, and, uh, and, and so when the, the seed tried to grow, it didn't have enough root uh, so that that shallow heart or the, the stony heart, it grew up immediately, but, but because uh, persecution arises. That's gonna be an interesting one. As Christianity becomes more um, persecuted in these days we're living, Will you be one who's you know, praising the Lord, singing songs of praise, going to church, being bold, and then suddenly when persecution comes, will you wither away? Because uh, that's one of the things that will happen if you're not rooted deeply. Uh, and that's a condition to be aware of. Um, but I think that's gonna be more um, perhaps uh, seen in these days as we're seeing people hate Christianity more and more. It's, it's happening right, right in front of us. Um, then you have, so you have the fouled up heart, the st- shallow heart. Then you have the distracted heart where the, um, you know, the cares of this world, the thorns uh, would spring up in the midst of the, um, the good seed. And uh, they're, they're the distractions are the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of other, other things. Do we as Americans have a problem with this one? Um, riches and deceitfulness uh, of that, the lusts of other things. Man, uh, I think there's a lot of, you know, Christians, and might, I might even say so-called Christians who have a very distracted heart where the thorn is choking out the word, sad but true. And then the fourth condition of soil is the healthy heart, where there's the healthy soil and it brings forth. Um, and I like, the, the Bible kind of gives something interesting here that the fruit of the word will, will in some bring forth, you know, it says here, 30 uh, fold and some 60 fold and some 100 fold. Um, I wonder, you know, when you wonder about the varying degrees of what kind of fruit will, will come, um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. What, what I've noticed, this is something just to think about, in these four conditions, I've noticed in my own walk, I'm not just a person who, since I was saved at five, I've had a, a heart of fertile soil. I've noticed, actually, I go in and out of all these. Uh, sometimes my heart is a little hardened toward the Word of God. Have you ever had a day where you approach the word of God and you, you're reading and you sense in your heart, my heart's just not right. As I'm reading the word, even my heart right now, as I'm reading, you kind of go, man, my heart just seems a little off. And, and that can be uh, any one of these conditions. Satan, uh, you know, uh, p- plucking up the seed so you can't hear it. Or maybe you've got, um, you know, uh, distractions, the cares of this world and the thorns are choking it out. Um, I've noticed that when, when somebody you know, says, man, the Bible just doesn't come to life like it once did. 
and they wonder where's the fruit of God's word. You might wanna check the condition of the soil of your heart. And I, I found we kind of meander in and out of that throughout our whole lives. It's not like you just have good soil. By the way, for you farmers, which we have a lot of them here in Portland, uh, joking, just saying, I, I, we have a few of you, gardeners and farmers. Um, does it take work to get soil ready for good fruit? A lot of work, uh, you know, and you have to be careful with the soil and you have to make sure the soil is in good condition. And, and I think that's one of the big difference, perhaps, when you're a person of, who, uh, who's reading the word of God, are you prepping the soil of your heart? You know, are you tilling and, you know, amending the soil and uh, fertilizing with, you know, you know, not to embellish on Jesus's analogies, but, um, you know, uh, fertilizing the soil of your heart can make your heart more ready. You know, how do you fertilize it? I like to pray and say, Lord, would your Holy Spirit speak to me as I'm reading the word of God? Let the Holy Spirit do a work um, on your heart and on your life. Um, but, all that to say, it's, this is an amazing, wonderful parable. And again, uh, we covered this in Matthew chapter 13, verses three through nine. In fact, we did a whole Sunday or weekend teaching called the parable of the sower. And if you'd like a more in-depth, because I think this is important. Um, well, Bretton, why are you blowing it off? Well, we did a deep study on this, but if you'd allow me tonight to take a slight detour on this particular parable, because there's stuff here that you might miss that I think uh, might be worth us taking a little extra time here in the Gospel of Mark since we covered it in Matthew. Are you guys game, of, game for that? Um, okay, it's gonna take a little thought and some time here. Um, now, let's, let's think about this. So, so the objective, I think, that we're looking at here is good fruit. Jesus says, I wanna see good fruit. And, and this, is, this is why he tells the parable of the sower, uh, that there would be people that have good fruit. Um, and what is good fruit? Um, as it turns out, uh, as Christians, there should be fruit in your life uh, and there should be good fruit. There's a, there's a such thing as a bad fruit uh, person. Do you remember where Jesus taught us, you know, about judging? I always crack up when the world who doesn't know the Bible, they always say, don't judge. The Bible says don't judge. And so there's this big thing, never judge, judge, judge. And, and if you, if you uh, see something in your friend that is really bad fruit, and you try to talk, don't judge me, Matthew chapter seven, judge not lest you be judged. And, the, and people quote that all the time. And can I just tell you, um, the, the, I hope you understand, in the same chapter, it kind of tells you to judge. Well, which one is it, Brett? Judge or not judge? Well, it's Matthew seven, verses one and two, that says, judge not lest you be judged. And, the, and, and obviously, it's, it's the idea of judging someone to condemnation for the purpose of condemnation. Um, in fact, it goes on in, in Matthew 7, verse two, for what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet or give out, it shall be measured to you again. So yes, on this idea of being judgmental or critical, that's definitely what Jesus was saying, don't do. But at the same time, in that same chapter in Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, do you remember what it says? Beware of false prophets, you know, that come like wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, and uh, it says, you'll know them. How will you know the false prophets? By their fruits. Uh, and then Jesus said, do men gather thorns from thistles? Um, you know, even every, it says every good tree brings forth good fruit and corrupt tree brings forth evil, evil fruit. So we're talking about fruit, good fruit, bad fruit, evil fruit, uh, good fruit. Um, but every tree that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. 
And then in verse 20 of chapter seven of Matthew, it says, um, whereby their, by their fruits you shall know them. You will know them by their fruit, which means we're not to be judgmental and critical, but you are meant to be fruit inspectors. Um, I've noticed fruit inspectors can be judgmental. Uh, do, do you ever remember back in the day, do they still look at your fruit and stuff or take your fruit when you go into California? I remember going through the little station there. It's been a while since I've driven through there, but um, they'd look and see if you had fruit and stuff. And, uh, but but uh, you know what? As it turns out, uh, that's something we're, we're to look for. You and I are supposed to look for good fruit. Um, so the idea is for uh, not condemnation, but for identification, fruit inspectors. Now, um, the idea is on this, um, when Jesus says, hearken and behold, I, I've already told you that we were supposed to listen up, but I wonder if there's something deeper still in this parable of why Jesus takes such effort to say, listen up three times. Um, and I, I sometimes, well, almost always, when I'm reading the Bible, do you feel like sometimes you're just missing so much? Like you almost can sense there's something more here and I'm just not really getting it. Um, I think that happens all the time. I have a hunch when we all get to heaven, we're gonna be shocked at uh, the things we didn't know. And you'll think, oh, I should have seen that. You know, like I'm pretty sure when we get to heaven, we'll just be shocked at all the, um, the web of connectivity throughout the whole Bible. It's this integrated message system that God has divinely ordained. And, and the, that's one of the supernatural uh, natures of the scriptures. I love the Bible because it's not, you know, people that read like in your colleges and universities, some of the books of the Bible, like I did at Southern Oregon University, they just, they, they handled it like with some book of literature, uh, which it is, but it's like 20,000 more levels than that. And if you don't see the layer upon layer, you're gonna miss a lot of stuff. There's a little bit of a layer thing here I wanna suggest to you uh, that might help you with the rest of your Bible reading that uh, could be really helpful. And it has to do why Jesus, I think, makes a big deal about this particular parable, saying three times, listen up. Um, and, um, and does this, remember I asked you the question, is this parable perhaps more important than all the other parables? It might just be, and I'll show you why. Did you, did you see what we read in verse 11? If you go back, in verse 11, it says, and he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. Okay, so the mysteries of the kingdom of God, does anybody wanna know what the mysteries of the kingdom of God are or should be? Well, then you need to look at the parables and look at them carefully. That's kind of an important thing. Um, and what is this mystery? Um, uh, and, and what is this secret? Why is God making this secret? Um, then there's those who will understand and be saved, and there's those who will not understand or not really be willing to understand. Look at verse 22. Um, we're gonna look ahead a little bit here in verse 22. It says, for there is nothing hid which shall not, not be manifested or made known, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. Um, in other words, um, the Lord's gonna reveal the secret or the mystery to his people. There's something hidden here. And the point is, it's not to stay hidden. It's meant to be revealed. Um, and we see that all throughout the Bible, uh, by the way. Uh, Daniel reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, and, um, and in fact, there's kind of an interesting thing about that. Um, so when we, when we see uh, Mark, you know, chapter four, verse 11, when it says there that, um, uh, this is the ESV version where it says, to you has been given the secret 
of the kingdom of God. Um, that's the same thing as mystery. But the secret, a secret in the Bible is meant to be revealed eventually. The Greek word for mystery is musterion, which means that which is covered, but it's about to be unveiled. Like a, a bride at a wedding, she's covered in a veil. And then uh, there's that great crescendo moment where you lift the veil and then the beautiful bride emerges. That's kind of the idea of the mystery, musterion in the Greek. Um, so when Daniel's talking about the secrets or the mysteries through the dreams of Nebi, there in Daniel chapter two, do you remember what Daniel says? Daniel 2, 28 says, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. Um, and this is something that um, we need to always be uh, aware of, that there are secrets in the Bible and God is the revealer of secrets. Uh, by the way, Daniel had a gift of that. Joseph had a gift of revealing interpretations of dreams. Um, and Daniel, um, uh, the whole book of Daniel is full of mystery and secrets. In fact, um, some of the book of Daniel, much of the book of Daniel was meant to be concealed. In fact, you remember how Daniel ends the book? Daniel chapter 12, book of prophecy, um, verse nine. And God said to Daniel, go thy way, um, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. By the way, um, the people that read Daniel's book right after he wrote it, they had no idea what in the world it was about. But can you imagine, now we have the advantage of hindsight because much of what Daniel talked about has already happened. Who would have imagined? You gotta remember, when Daniel was there, uh, you know, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and Daniel was stuck in Babylon when he received this prophecy of Daniel chapter, or chapters one through 12. Um, but the Lord says, seal up the words of this book because you're not gonna get it. And Daniel was astonished and he didn't understand what he had written, it says, and he went about the king's business. In other words, he just went on with his life serving without the revelation of the secrets. Now, with that said, it makes you and me start to wonder, what are the secrets? Well, if you read the book, the secrets include like with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember the statue, the head of gold was the Babylonians. Um, and And... And Daniel even says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but after you is gonna come an empire uh, and the shoulders of silver, you know, arms of silver and the belly of brass, legs of iron, feet of part iron and part clay. And, and he said, these are other kingdoms, but that's all they got. And as another kingdom is gonna come and smash the kingdoms and set up an everlasting kingdom, the end. And they're kind of like, what in the world? But if you know history, it unfolded just like that. After the Babylonians came the Medes and the Persians, the two arms, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was inferior to the Babylonians. Remember the gold, silver, brass, iron? It was a de decreasing um, a substance, uh, decreasing power and, and even type of government. You know, whereas Babylon was like a, you know, absolute monarchy, um, the Medo-Persian Empire was a constitutional monarchy. The, even remember when Darius couldn't even change the law after he had signed it into to create. Like, yeah, and then, and then you know, each government gets weaker and weaker. Well, it's all perfectly spelled out. So exact is the prophecies of Daniel that to this day, uh, your colleges and universities say it's a forgery. The book of Daniel is a forgery, and it was really written in 90 A.D. Um, and the reason they argue that is because how could anyone know all those kingdoms with such precision that would come after Daniel's life was over, after Nebuchadnezzar was long dead? How could anybody know that? So it must have been written in 90 AD. Do you guys remember what's the probably the, there's a lot of academic arguments we can get into why that's totally crazy 
to say that. But what's the easiest one? Does anybody remember? The Septuagint, yes. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint was written around 270 BC. While that's later than Daniel, it's far earlier than 90 AD. Would you agree with that? Everybody knows when the Septuagint was written. Even the worst of skeptics have to admit, yeah, the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament was written around 270 BC, which was before many, if not most of the prophecies that came through Daniel. Again, there's, it's a ridiculous argument. And they're still making it in colleges and universities. They're just hoping that no, none, none of the college students are aware of the Septuagint and its date. It's so ridiculous. It's, it's, oh, Brett, you mean they're lying to students in colleges? Uh, that's a whole nother sermon, I'm afraid. Anyway, uh, but Daniel, you know, was told the words of your book is gonna be a secret, sealed up and closed, sealed until the time of the end. The Lord's gonna reveal those secrets in his time. And the closer you and I get to the end of the world, the more those secrets will be revealed. That's why I think we understand the book of Daniel so much, because we're getting close to the end. Um, and remember the book of Revelation, when John wrote that, the revelation of Jesus Christ, he said, do not seal up the words of this book, um, which in, in, imply that now we're getting closer to the end and, and all this stuff starts to come together. Uh, you won't really understand the book of Revelation unless you understand the book of Daniel and vice versa. Daniel unlocks the book of Revelation. Uh, and it's so cool. Well, anyway, um, now one of the things we need to establish with this discussion of the revealing of secrets, doctrine never changes. Um, the teaching of essential doctrines of the Christian faith never change. Um, and that's an important thing. If, if somebody comes and says, I have a new secret from the Bible, uh, and it's, it's different than the rest of the Bible, and it doesn't line up with essential doctrines of the Christian faith, you can just tell that person, sorry, uh, that's wacko. We, we don't believe in revealing of secrets that are not in line with Scripture. So when it comes to doctrine, we're locked in. And you've heard me say, you know, if, it, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. Okay, that's really important to understand. But when it comes to Bible prophecy and end times and and also the Lord revealing his secrets. They're already in the word. It's just, we're not really sure we understand. So for example, let me give you a good revealing of secrets that was kind of, kind of cool. Um, when Israel was scattered in AD 70, we talked about this a few weeks ago, um, and uh, Rome conquered the Jews. They were scattered all over the world. They were scattered for you know, almost 2000 years. They ceased to exist as a people, as a nation. The Jews were still around the world, but scattered. But all these prophecies of the Bible about Israel, the nation Israel, and nations attacking Israel, and the Iranians attacking Israel, and the Russians uh, eventually gonna attack Israel, and uh, all this stuff about this nation of Israel. What did the Bible students do when they read about these prophecies about the end times in Israel? Well, they concluded, well, all these things must be figurative because Israel doesn't even exist anymore and they haven't for thousands of years. So um, they all became amillennialists or preterists saying it's all pictures and types. There's nothing real. It's not a literal interpretation. And sadly, there's still people that are kind of duped into thinking it's all just sort of pictures and not true. But on May 14th, 1948, everybody should have said, wow, a lot of us did back, if you were alive back in those days, you said, wow, Israel became a nation just like the Bible said, that God would regather his people. 
and he would make a mighty nation and the bones would be brought together and eventually life would be breathed back into the nation. Ezekiel 36 and 37, amazing prophecy about the regathering and, and strengthening of God's people in the land of Israel. So when that happened literally, that's God revealing his secrets. You guys, everything in prophecy should be taken literally. That's a revelation of, of God's secrets. Uh, it, was, it was not so easy to, to understand, you know, um, at that time uh, un until you see literal prophecies. Now, by the way, we're seeing those secrets revealed all the time. I think that's one of the fun things about Bible prophecy because people say, Brett, you're, you're looking at world events and you're trying to create in your prophecy update, you're trying to create uh, what's going on in the world and tie it into Bible prophecy. Well, actually, that's not exactly what we're doing. What we're, what we're doing is trying to be aware of what's going on in the world that we might understand the, the secrets that have yet to be fully revealed because there's still things I don't understand in the Bible. And I, and I wonder, um, you know, uh, let, me, let me give you an honest one, for example. Um, for years, uh, I've taught um, that the 10 toes of Daniel chapter two and the 10 toes of the, you know, would be a 10 nation confederation uh, or 10 kingdoms. And, um, and that's, that's out of the old Roman empire. There's, and that's still yet to have happened. We have not had the days of those kings. Why? Because the Bible says in the days of those kings, that's when the Messiah is gonna come and crush all the nations of the world. But if you've been with us for a long time, I, I've taught that, that, could it be, and I've never been fully dogmatic, but I said, could it be, you know, that like the European nations, European union, and it, it could be, but I don't know. I don't, I, I'm not sure about that. Could it be another group of kings and kingdoms? Um, we'll talk about that, uh, I'm sure, just a few weeks when we get to the book of Revelation <laughs> or the book of Daniel again, um, or on a prophecy update. Maybe I'll talk more about that one of these times soon. Um, but there's all kinds of interesting theories out there about what are, what are those 10 kingdoms and those 10 kings? Because in the days of those kings, the Lord Jesus is gonna return. So is it worthwhile kind of looking at what's going on in the world to say out of the old Roman empire, the iron legs come feet, part iron, part clay with 10 toes that are, and, and Daniel said those toes are 10 kings. Um, that's why it's, it's fun for us to look at what's going on in the world to say, how does it all fit? Now, um, none of us are prophesying anything. I've, I've had people online say, Brett's trying to be a prophet. Well, if you've been to a prophecy update, I've never made a prophecy. I talk about Bible prophecy. Uh, it's kind of ridiculous. People that say stupid things. Happens all the time. Um, <laughs> I say stupid things too, so uh, join the crowd. But, but when it comes to the Bible, there, it's immovable, unshakable. Uh, so I love the, the nature of Bible prophecy but oftentimes this idea of diving deep into the scripture to see the re revelation of the secrets, God is a revealer of secrets. That's what the Bible says. Okay, you guys with me on that? That's kind of important. Um, so digging deeper, not just about the end times, but also about the Lord himself, uh, learning things about him, about life, about what we're to do. Um, you know, uh, by the way, I think it's valuable to not just leave the hard work to other people. But I think it's your job as a Christian to search out the Bible for the secrets. Uh, and the more you dig in the scripture, the more treasure you'll find. I'm, I'm convinced of that. It's, and, and there's something really rewarding when you find those little golden nuggets, the revealing of secret that the Lord wants to do for you. Um, in, in fact, check this out. It's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter two. It talks about this. It says this, and Paul's, Paul's talking about this. He says, 
in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 11. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So that's everything I just said. I'm proving that what I said is biblical right there. Um, that God, he's got hidden wisdom and God ordained that uh, before the world. Um, that's an important thing to know. Verse eight, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now pause there just for a second. Had they known the, the secrets why would they have not crucified? If the Jews had done their due diligence to search their own scriptures, would they have known that Jesus really was the Messiah? But it was hidden. It was hidden before their eyes. Um, they, remember, they should have known the very day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his little colt of a donkey on Palm Sunday because Daniel chapter nine, if you do the math, of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, they could have known the very day. That's why Jesus, when he wrote in, he wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, you should have known even this thy day. Uh, but they didn't because it was a secret that they didn't dig. Um, question, in the Christmas story, who did the most digging to find out what was going on in the world at that time? The Magi, the wise men. Because they come riding into Jerusalem, hey, uh, we were told about the star and the Lord and Jesus and all this, they were Messiah. And the Jews are like, uh, they said, where, where, where are we supposed to look, these, these magi? They're looking. They're just a bunch of Babylonian pagan wackos. But somehow they were looking for, I believe somewhere along the way, Daniel or somebody from the captivity era brought some of the truth to Babylon and these magi, they were digging. And I believe if you dig, you will find. If you seek me, you will find me, the Lord says. These guys were seeking the Messiah, Jesus. When they asked the Jews, they said, oh, he's, uh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Ephraim, according to the old you know, ancient scriptures, whatever. And, and the Magi went to Bethlehem. They were the ones searching. And by the way, that's the same thing true today. The people that are digging. Um, and by the way, I would say the people that are studying Bible prophecy, I liken the churches as, yeah, prophecy, prophecy, whatever. You guys are a bunch of weirdos studying end times. Uh, I believe in pan trib. It's all gonna pan out in God's way, whatever. Forget about end times. That's apathetic. And that's throwing one fourth of the Bible out the window saying you're not caring about one fourth of the Bible because one fourth of this book is Bible prophecy. I'd rather be the Magi in the story, not the Jews that were, wouldn't get off their duff out of Jerusalem to go see what was happening in Bethlehem. I kind of liken that to a lot of the church today, sad to say. We should be diggers, searchers, searching the scriptures to see what it says. So they, if they would have known, you know, Jesus is all the 300 specific prophecies about Jesus, the Messiah, they would not have crucified him. That's what this is all saying. But verse nine, as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, this is a funny little scripture being quoted here in 1 Corinthians because it's a, a scripture quoting from Isaiah. And Isaiah, I believe Isaiah is talking contextually about heaven. And that's when you hear this verse where we talk about how in heaven, man, we, we've not even seen or even imagined what God has prepared for us in heaven. But in the context of the quoting of that Isaiah passage in 1 Corinthians, it's almost like he's saying, um, you know, there's more to even here and now. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the wonderful things, you know, the, that God has prepared for them even here and now. That's kind of an interesting 
take that Paul puts on this. Um, and then he goes on in verse 10, he says, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the spirit of God. So God has a secret. He has a revealer of secrets, and that's the Holy Spirit. Um, it's almost like some of the Bible is secret encoded information, encrypted with mysteries, and it takes the Holy Spirit for man to be able to discern those mysteries. Now, again, I'm gonna say this again. If you have a mystery revealed to you, it better line up with all the rest of the scripture. Um, if, if you wake up and come to day three, Brad, I had a dream, and I dreamed that we're supposed to make tin foil hats that are shaped like a pyramid. And as we put them on our head, it'll funnel into our third eye of understanding and we'll enter into a new level of enlightenment with our foil hats. I'd say, no, that's wacko because it's not in the scriptures. Um, the revealing of secrets will only be confirmed by black and white scripture clearly, plainly said. Um, for example, Israel becoming a mighty nation, people would have said, that's ridiculous. Israel's never gonna become a nation. Um, you know, um, uh, but... When it did, you go, wow, Israel became a nation. And look, it's confirmed in the word. That's just kind of an example I would give you. So they could have known that Jesus was the Messiah, 1 Corinthians says, but God has mysteries. And he reveals his mysteries in his time. And he did not reveal his, his mysteries to the Jews. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 tells us that largely the Jews, that their eyes are blinded right now. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Remember that scripture? Um, so what's interesting is I think it's the Gentile church largely that's getting the revelation uh, of, uh, by the spirit in the word more than just about anybody else. So God has mysteries. He reveals his mysteries in his perfect timing. What's the key to unlocking the mysteries in the parables? Um, well, that's where we go back to our text here in Mark chapter four. Um, look at verse 13. So not only did we say verse 11, you know, the, 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 the mystery of the kingdom of God is in the parables, but look at verse 13. And he said unto them, know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all the parables? How will you know all the parables if you don't know this parable about the sower of the seed? Um, and so that's maybe why three times Jesus says, listen up, three times, because this is sort of a key that helps you discern, decipher, understand, um, uh, is how does that work out? Well, um, that, there's a, a kind of thing I wanna bring up called expositional constancy. Fancy term, but it's suggestion, and not everybody agrees with this, by the way, but I, I'm one who believes not in a, um, I'm not gonna say a, um, perfect, you know, without any, you know, uh, gradient of this or anything, but um, expositional constancy is basically the suggestion that symbols and idioms in the Bible are used in a consistent fashion. Um, they tend to represent the same thing wherever they're mentioned, especially in the parables, okay? That's kind of an important thing. Um, let me give you an example of, of something that's maybe not so constant, but it is kind of interesting. Um, do birds of the Bible represent good or evil? What about the dove? See, I gotcha. I gotcha all you said that evil. No, you're right though. 
See, a, a person who doesn't read the Bible, they might kind of say, well, a bird, uh, the dove is a Holy Spirit. And yeah, the dove is uniquely not considered evil in the Bible and it's a type of the Holy Spirit. But most other examples, even Noah releasing the, the raven versus the dove or you know the blackbird, um, you, you kind of see there's a difference uh, between birds. But most of the time in the Bible, birds of the air or the fowls of the air do represent evil. Um, and especially when it comes to the parables, that's kind of important. Once Jesus reveals the meaning of parables, we keep those same meanings constantly throughout the other parables. Does that, does that help you? Now, this is gonna help us later on in this chapter if we ever get to that part. Um, <laughs> so um, the parable of the sower, we have in Matthew chapter 13, Luke chapter eight, Mark chapter four. Um, we've already mentioned the seed is the word of God. And so one of the things we need to remember is throughout the parables, whenever you see seed or stories about seed, we need to kind of remember that there's, there's seed. Like even in Luke's gospel, he says it most clearly in Luke chapter eight. Whoops, I shouldn't have clicked that yet. Um, in Luke chapter eight, it says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Luke says it most plainly, most clearly. Um, so, um, so, but here's the thing. One of the things we see in the Bible is good seed versus bad seed. So then you kind of have to start thinking, okay, if the good seed's the word, what's the bad seed? We dig deeper. And it goes back to uh, the beginning. If you wanna learn about the parables and what the meanings are and the rest of the Bible and all the imagery and stuff, it helps to kind of compare and contrast. Uh, so when it comes to knowing the good seed from the bad seed, um, there's, a, there's a study called biblical hermeneutics. The word hermeneutics just means to rightly you know, divide the word. It's a, it's a system of study, the scripture, to, to be effective. And one of the principles of hermeneutics is the principle of, principle of first mention. When something's first mentioned in the Bible, it's usually an important mention. And I, I love that about the Bible. So when you look at seed, when is seed first introduced? Um, well, it, it, it's introduced in Genesis chapter one. Let me, let me show you where this is. Um, and this is kind of an important thing. Uh, Genesis 1, 11 and 12 says, and God said, let the earth bring forth grass and the herb yielding seed. There it is, first mention. And the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Um, note that, after his kind. Whose seed in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good. Why does God repeat himself in the Bible to be redundant? No, when God repeats stuff, it's because it's important. Now, I know this might seem elementary, but um, as it turns out, uh, you, you can't take an apple seed and plant it and have an orange tree pop out. Um, everything is measured and designed after his kind. Uh, the beginning of something starts with seed and the seed itself is after his kind. Um, now, biology 101, when we talk about this stuff, why does God talk such detail uh, like this after his kind? Every seed brings forth his own fruit of his own kind. This is true, by the way, in nature, but it's also true in the spiritual realm as well. Uh, the Bible talks about the spiritual seed of the word and the good seed of the word brings forth a certain kind of good fruit. Um, but we talked earlier, did we not, about 
people that have bad fruit and you'll know them by the fruits. Let me put that up there since I mentioned it earlier tonight. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruit you shall know them. Okay, we already know the seed, the good seed is the word of God. So then what is the bad seed? Is there bad seed? Um, Well, it gets bad really fast. Um, uh, If we go to um, Mark chapter four, we only talk about, you know, the good seed. Um, But what about the uh, antithesis of the good seed? By the way, the word seed, the Greek text, there's three different words used for the word seed. Um, sperma, spora, and sporos. Um, and you can guess where we get our English word for the human seed, if you would, is the first one there. Um, and uh, you're saying, Brett, moving right along. Uh, yeah, no, but that's, that comes into play. That's important here in a second. Um, uh, now, if you guys took biology, and I, I probably should go into this since nobody believes us anymore, but 46 chromosomes in each of our cells. Each one of your cells has 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, uh, 23 female, 23 male, 22 pairs of autosomes. um, And they both look the same, by the way. The 22 look the same in both males and females. But the one pair, the sex chromosome, as some people call it, determines gender, as it turns out. Shocking. The female XX, the male XY. And, And what's important is to understand that the male and the female bring sort of half and half. Um, And one side is the sperm, the seed, the sperm, and the other side is the egg. Uh, um, And and the reason this is kind of a a cool thing is when you think about the, the, we're talking about the natural biology of things. What about the uh, idiom of the seed of the word and the soil of men's heart? If the seed is the word and it reaches the soil of men's heart, um, those two things come together, what happens? And by the way, um, creation itself, when we look at the, the, the human cell and the seed and the way it, it works, and especially in the human seed of sperm and the egg, it, it, does, it, does it tell us of God? Does it speak of his creation? Uh, absolutely, Psalm 19.1, all the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Um, Romans 1, do you remember what Romans 1.20 says? For the invisible things from him, from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made, the creation, so that the unbelievers are without excuse. That's what Romans 1 says. So even the the unbeliever never heard Billy Graham, never heard the Bible. Creation itself indicts that person who's unbelieving. That's what the Bible says. Because it says when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, were neither thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to become wise. Does that sound familiar? Um, they become fools. And what did they do? This is interesting in the days we're living. They become fools and they have tried to, it says here in verse 23 of Romans 1, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. See, this is where, you know, the transgender um, movement is such a demonic sort of thing. Of all the things God created in, in humanity, there's a part of the world that's saying, God got it wrong. Um, and we don't like the way God made it. So we're gonna try to change ourselves, even though you're never gonna change. You can get 
you know, uh, surgeries, you can apply makeup, you can have pieces of your body removed. Um, but did you know that your chromosomes and uh, I mean, you know, your DNA, it's built into your bones. If they find your bones a thousand years from now, they'll look at your bones and say, oh, this was a man. It's gonna be there. Even if you got the surgeries and took the inhibitors and the you know, block, puberty blockers, they're still gonna say, nope, a thousand years from now, this was a man because of its biological fact. But the world, Romans 1.23, they try to change the glory of uncorruptible God into an image made of corruptible man and to birds, four-footed beasts, creeping things. Uh, that's idolatry in some ways and maybe other things too. So what does God do? He gave them up to their own uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Do you see what we're seeing today is, uh, talk about end times. I think one of the signs of the times is what Paul talks about to the Romans. This is what men would do. And that is in fact what men are doing. So, um, so as it turns out, even in your flesh and your bones and your genetic makeup, it reflects the glory of God. So if you would, and I know I'm kind of meandering here, but um, if you take the feminine, uh, uh, the egg, if you would, and the sperm, the masculine, what is, how does that spiritually pan out? Well, the feminine is the bride of Christ. We are the church who takes in the word of God. And, and what happens when you have the feminine and the masculine brought together, you see uh, the faith, you might say the bride has faith and the seed of the, the word of God hits the bride and it brings forth fruit. Um, and, you know, by the way, it's that faith where we receive that seed of the word of God. Um, so um, the, the seed comes from the male side, the word of God. Um, and because of that, spiritual life, there's spiritual life, eternal life that happens. I think biology is speaking of something spiritual, not just biological. That's important. So we go back to this, you know, parable of the, of the sower and of the seed. Um, uh, let me show you another thing about the seed. This is start to bring up some more discussion. Turn with me to Matthew 13. We'll go back to the Matthew section. In Matthew chapter 13, and try to keep in the back of your mind, expositional constancy. Seed is the word. That's, that's something to kind of lock in. Matthew 13, verse 24. He gives us another parable. In verse 24, another parable he put forth unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. What would that seed be? The word of God, it's good seed. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? Weeds, you know. And it says in verse 28, he said unto them, an enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, no. While they gather up the tares, you'll root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say unto the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Um, okay, so, so we see here, the seed is the word. The bad seed is sown. When was the bad seed sown? While men slept. That's, that's a reminder. While men were sleeping, that's when the bad seed was ultimately sown, while men were sleeping. Hmm. Um, then, uh, by the way, um, this is, um, if you missed Ironworks Brothers last, this last Saturday, can I just say, I, I, most of you are probably there. There was packed house. Um, but uh, if you missed it, or if you're you know, from another state or country, um, I think this is the problem with men today, is that men are sleeping. And bad seed is being sown in our homes and our children and our families. And it's while we were sleeping, these things were happening. And that's one of the things we sort of addressed uh, on uh, Saturday. So if you missed it, you can go to our website and catch up with that. But um, this, this is important. Don't sleep and let things creep uh, in. That's what happens here. And so Satan's wanting to corrupt the field with bad seed. Um, and, um, and so when are they gonna harvest the whole thing? He says, wait till the end of the harvest comes. Um, by the way, uh, when I was in Africa, they were growing sorghum. And they were telling me how the sorghum, which I didn't know what sorghum was, but it's sort of, it looks a little bit like little chopped up rice. Um, it's sort of a grain that they grow out there in the you know, West African desert. Um, but they have the same problem of their sorghum growing with a bunch of uh, things that look like sorghum, but it's not, it's not even edible. Um, so they, they, they told me how the, the good sorghum, how can you tell the difference? Well, they mentioned something that I've heard about this story. The good sorghum is a stronger sock, stock, and it, um, or pardon me, it's strong until the end when it's time to harvest, it starts to bow low. The weed version is, is weaker and lighter, but it stays straight up. And so when the time comes, they wait till all the good fruit bows down. They chop off all the high stuff that's standing pridefully, if you understand what I'm saying, chops that down and they throw it in the fire. And then they harvest the stuff that's bowed down low uh, in humility. Uh, uh, it's a great an analogy. And that's, that's what the Lord's saying here. Wait till the time of the harvest. Otherwise you're gonna uproot everything. And it's not gonna be helpful. So um, then um, fast forward a little bit here uh, into um, uh, verse 36. Then Jesus, it says in verse 36, we're jumping ahead, uh, sent the multitude away and went to the house. And his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. Huh, there's some definition for you, Brad. How could it be that the, um, the field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom? Good seed produces good fruit, children, if you would. Are you guys with me on that? So it's still expositional constancy. I'm, I'm making that point for other reasons, but the bad seed is sown by the devil, listen, producing fruit of its own kind. The devil sows seed and it produces fruit of its own kind, which brings forth bad fruit. Um, but uh, what's good fruit? What does good fruit look like? Well, just remember Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You know, what's the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. The fruit of the spirit is so, so uh, evident as far as good fruit. 
And then it talks about the works of the flesh and it lists all kinds of the bad fruit things like idolatry, witchcraft, adultery, that huge list there of bad fruits there as well. Now, the Jews who heard this stuff, they would have recognized some things here that probably we may not. And it has to do with some of the laws about mixing seed. The Bible said, whatever you do, Jews in Old Testament law, don't be mixing up the seed. Uh, and he makes a big point of that. Let me show you a few of those highlights of things that we went through back when we were in the book of Leviticus. It says in Leviticus 19, 19, you shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Isn't that interesting? Who cares about cattle? And who, what, you know, how, how, which breeds are mixing one another? Have you ever had a Wagyu steak? Brad, you're off topic. Not really. <laughs> a Wagyu steak, it's a long story. Back in Japan, there was these cows. <laughs> and, uh, and Americans back in the late, or, uh, late 1800s brought over like 2,500 head of cattle to Japan, but they never mixed them. The, the Japanese cattle were never mixed. But through the mixing and the, the kind of isolation of some of these cows in Japan, it produced a certain kind of meat that you can't see really anywhere else in the world. And if you've ever had a Wagyu steak, and there's different grades, by the way. If you get an A5 Wagyu steak, it'll, if you go like buy one, it'll probably cost you 130 bucks just for a one ribeye steak, a Wagyu, uh, an A5 level one. Uh, you say, Brett, what does it have to do with this? Well, it's interesting to me that God said, I don't want you mixing up the cattle. I want you to kind of keep some of these. I, I just have a hunch when we get to heaven and we'll go, Wagyu beef. Exactly, Lord, you knew what you were doing. The best ribeye in the world is a Wagyu beef steak. Anyway, uh, maybe I'm, you guys are looking at me concerned. <laughs> thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment be mingled of linen and woolen coming upon thee. Don't mix stuff that doesn't belong together. That's, that's, you say, Brett, that's so practical. Oh, but it's a picture. All of this stuff is a picture of what we should be careful about, not you mixing things that don't go, go together. Deuteronomy 22, verse nine, thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse seeds, lest the fruit of thy seed, which thou hast sown, and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. Um, Paul the Apostle expounded about this, taking the Old Testament picture of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and bringing it to New Testament truth. 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 14 through 18, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. James 4.4, 4, you adulterers, adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend with the world is an enmity with God. 
You see, the Bible, and I'm just giving you the high points. There's, uh, there's all kinds of um, you know, examples of this uh, in the scriptures, um, but I'm just giving you the, the high points. But basically, this is a big warning in the Bible. Mixture is something God's not into. Mixing it up with the world. Don't be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's a warning to his church. Um, do, do you love the word of God, but go along with kind of everything else? See, there's a thing I'm noticing where people that even say, yeah, I love the Bible, but I also love this and that and the other thing. And we love, we, we can start to allow the world to creep into our lives and we live a life of mixture. Um, there used to be a day where people took the idea of being separate from the world. People took that very seriously. Now you'd say, oh, they're prudish or Puritan or self-righteous. Like people, people have taken a real bad, you know, sort of view of, of a person who's saying, I'm gonna try to live a holy life, separate, different. I'm not gonna do the same things that everybody else is doing. And the question you might wanna ask yourself, is there bad seed being brought by, by Satan himself into your homes through your iPhones? through your TVs, through your music, through the education that you paid so much money for? Is there a ton of bad seed being, seed being sown? And the question is, at the harvest, what's gonna be left, tares or good fruit? Because you start to wonder, is the, does the line start to get a little gray? Brother, are you arguing that someone could lose their salvation or someone could sort of get unsaved? I'm just saying, I don't want anything to do with this mixture that God hates. He says, I hate Mixture. You know, um, how do we tell a, a true Christian following in the ways of the Lord, doing what the word says, and then someone who's just playing the part of a Christian? I think at the end times, there's gonna be some evidence. Remember the thing about the stocks that stand proud and the ones that are humbled? I wonder if that's one of the big evidences. If there's people that are walking around humbly in the sight of the Lord, the Lord says, I will lift you up. Um, harvest and bring to eternal life. But those who walk in pride, the Lord is able to abase. This is the same imagery all throughout the Bible. Um, and at the end times, God will finally separate the true believers from the name only believers who haven't really believed or repented of their sins. Um, so, so how can you tell if someone has good seed in their life? Um, well, you know, let's not forget what the Bible says, just some basic stuff. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. That's the seed, which is God. And it's Jesus because it's John 1.14, same chapter. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Remember how we were talking about seed after his kind? In the seed, Jesus had the same glory of the Father. Did you see that it says there? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that's God, and the Word, which is God, became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Um, it's Jesus after his own kind, if you would, because he was begotten of the Father. Are you guys following me on this? Um, Jesus said, you know, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So too, a, a Christian like yourself, if, and I hope we're all Christians here, um, you know, we need to resemble Jesus. <laughs> Someone, you know, it's not, you know, when we say, what would Jesus do? No, no, really to, to, to see the evidence of Christ in us. 
You know, when you see a father and a son, you go, wow, you guys look alike. I see your, your, you and your son. Does, does that, is that what you look like spiritually? Do people kind of say, wow, you, you look a lot like Jesus? Or do they go, no, a little more red and pointy pitchfork tail and some horns. <laughs> I'm joking, but um, the study of good seed. Now, how hard is Satan trying to mess up the pure seed? Obviously, we've got already with two parables, we've got birds plucking seed out, but we also in Matthew's parable, it says that the, the enemy went when the men were sleeping and sowed bad seed among the good. Is that the only pictures we have of Satan messing with the seed? Oh no. It goes all the way back to early Genesis, remember? It's the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. If you're following the seed analogy, that's amazing because we're talking about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ who's gonna crush Satan. That's, that's a great thing. There's no sperm from the woman, but that's where, that's where the proto-evangelium as it's called, the first mention of the gospels, when the, the virgin will give birth to a son through the seed of the woman. That's, that's a miraculous thing that happens there. We could talk about corrupted seed with Cain and Abel. We could talk about the corruption of the trying to corrupt the seed of Abraham and, and uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What happened? Well, remember when there was a corruption that happened to Abraham's seed when he slept with Hagar, the Egyptian, and suddenly you got Ishmael, who's the father of the Arab nation? That was an attempt to pervert and corrupt the seed through the line which the Messiah, Jesus, would come. I mean, we could just go on and on. Uh, would you turn to Genesis six? I know, I'm almost done. We're not gonna uh, finish. I was gonna get to chapter eight tonight, but um, <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, Genesis six, I'm almost done. <laughs> you wanna know one of the big times where I think the enemy tried to corrupt the seed of the line of the Messiah through all of humanity? And it almost worked. And it's one of these scriptures, it's a mystery. A lot of people, a lot of pastors would never read this in church because they don't wanna try to answer what in the world's going on here. It's one of the weirder chapters of the Bible. Um, it's Genesis chapter six, verse one. By the way, when you get to weird stuff, usually there's some cool mystery involved with the weirdest of scriptures. That's, that's what makes the Bible so fun. But it says in Genesis 6, one, came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now, this language here, I'm just gonna do a quick, you can do your own deeper study on this, but the sons of God is a term that's not really used for humanity or men, but it's usually uh, using for an angel of some kind or even a fallen angel. Um, uh, literally um, a creation of God um, every other time this is used, four times in the Bible, this phrase is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about angels or demons, okay? Every other time, this word translated from Hebrew, when it says the sons of God, they're talking about angels or demons, every other time. So that's the weird part. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and took them wives of all which they chose, so brother, are you suggesting that these demonic men, whatever they are, fallen angels, are, are married to women that are humans and there's something really weird going on here? Yes. Check out their babies. <laughs> Verse three, and the Lord said, my spirit will not always strive with man. For he that is also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years 
and there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. The word renown there is reputation, good or bad is the idea. And verse five, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every imagination and thought of his heart was only evil continually. The world changed badly when the sons of God came and had babies with the daughters of men. Suddenly you got these Nephilim, these giants, men of renown, famous. Um, if you study this idea of the Nephilim, they were extremely intelligent, but they were also giants. It's, it's, it's bad enough if you've got a giant, fee, 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 fee. that's bad enough. But if he's walking around, E equals MC squared. Like that's scary right there. You know what I'm saying? That's scary. That's what these guys were. They were giants, they were smart. Um, walking around like intelligent dudes. And God sees the wickedness that they were continually just thinking evil. Does that remind you of today? Don't forget what Jesus said, the days of Noah, that's what it's gonna be like when I, when I come again. And I think that when you read this whole chapter, you kind of go, well, we're there kind of. But uh, man, I wish I had more time to go into this, but there's some things people miss uh, that are, that's really important right here. Um, it says, uh, verse seven, the Lord said, I will destroy man who I've created from the face of the earth, both man, beast, the creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I had made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, now this is where people just blow off the terminology. Verse nine, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God and Noah begot three sons, Ham, Shem, Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, this, people just blow this off. Verse 12, it says, and the God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. You and I, we think of corruption like Putin or Biden or like, you know, like the United States, corruption. You know, like that's what I think of corruption, but that's not the word here. The word corruption is literally they were corrupt in their genetics. When Noah says here, did you see what it said about Noah? He, he was upright or uh, something, depending on what translation, perfect in the King James, but the word is upright in his generations. What does that mean? Um, that he was upright in his generations. I'm just giving you the quick version. It means that his genetics were not corrupted by what had happened earlier in the chapter by the uh, sexual intimacy between these fallen angels and women. Are you guys with me? They were not corrupt. His seed was not yet corrupt. And that's why it says, so God saved Noah and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. It was like the Lord was doing a reset because of the corruption of the seed that happened earlier in humanity. By the way, um, boy, I'm way over time. I should probably quit right now. Anyway, you're dismissed. No, uh, really quick. Um, have you ever watched like the Discover Channel or the History Channel, which is always really, a, you have to be careful with, but what cracks me up is these guys that are archeologists and guys trying to study the stars and ancient civilizations and all this stuff. And one of the things they just totally ignore is every culture and people group had giants. And, and, and what's funny, South America, all over the ancient world, they're finding that there were these giants or, or legends of giants. But none of them want to admit that the Bible's right. They were actually giants that did roam the earth. They just want to say it's all folklore and all this stuff. Well, uh, I believe it was way more than folklore. And, um, and what you might think, Brett, you're crazy. Well, 
you just mark my words, uh, I think when we get to heaven, we're gonna be shocked how much the Bible is just 100% accurate on all this stuff. The flood destroyed that. You brought, well, there were giants after. How did, how did giants get in after the antediluvian world was flooded? Well, you gotta remember, Noah also had three sons and they brought in wives as well. Could it been there's some kind of a mutation of corruption that was crept, crept in with the wives? I know I'm getting in too much detail here, but my point is this. Genesis 6 is, a, is an example of when Satan and his demons were once again trying to mess up the human seed that would ultimately bring forth the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus, could not have been part of a human existence uh, that was part of that corruption of Satan. Uh, you know, God can do anything he wants, but Satan as an attempt to corrupt humanity was really, I think, a, a, an attempt to corrupt the seed, if you would. All throughout the Bible, the idea of the corruption of seed eventually would lead to um, the, the first flood, but at the same corruption, I believe, is gonna lead to the second coming of Christ. The, the world, when you read about the end times and how there's gonna be deception, there's gonna be a great apostasia where people are gonna depart from faith. I think it's all part of the corruption of seed. And, and boy, I, I wished I didn't run out of time because I was gonna talk about how has the corrupt seed, the tares, has it pridefully entered into the church of Jesus Christ today? Um, and, and what's gonna happen at the time of harvest? Well, what's the harvest? The harvest is gonna be the rapture of the church. And my hope and prayer is that when the rapture happens, that nobody shows up on that Sunday morning here at Athey Creek. I hope that we're all raptured and taken up, but that we're not poser Christians sort of playing the game, but mixing it up with the world to the point where we're, we've become corrupt in our, in our worldview. Just because we go to church, just because we uh, sit and listen to Brett's tedious long studies, uh, that somehow you can check a Christian box. No, the, the, the Christian salvation comes from repenting of your sins and accepting the work of the cross, being saved. But one of the things that being saved, it should be something that causes you to be separate from the world. And you should see good fruit in your life. It's not perfect. We all have sinful corruption in us, but that's one of the things that we should be really aware of. Are we allowing the seed of corruption to enter into our homes, our lives, our families? May the Lord give us ears to hear. And, and the reason I go into all this is because I think every Next week, we're gonna hit uh, in chapter four of, of Mark, a parable about birds resting in a big tree, a mustard tree that grows into this big tree. And you'll hear sermon after sermon about how, oh, how wonderful the birds come and lodge on the branches of this glorious, beautiful tree. But if you've been studying what we've talked about in expositional constancy, is this gonna be a good thing? Birds landing on a mustard? Is there such thing as a mustard tree or is that a corrupt seed? because a mustard seed only grows into a plant. Even in the Middle East, even everywhere else. I mean, there's some big mustard seed plants, but not a giant mustard seed tree. That's a corruption of seed right there with big birds landing on its branches. We'll talk about that. That's what I mean about expositional constancy. We'll start to understand uh, what some of these other parables mean when we compare against each of them. So, sorry, I know that was just first 20 verses. Oops, <laughs> we'll, we'll finish the rest next week. Lord, we are thankful for your word. It, it is layer upon layer of important and valuable information. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who dig for those gems and the treasures in your word that help us understand how things work. 
and how things shouldn't be working. I pray, Lord, for Athey Creekers that we would be people set apart, uh, sanctified, that um, like the Bible reminded, that we, we remember Phineas of old when the Midianite women came in and were having sexual relations with the children of, of Israel and it was perverting the, the, the nation. They were worshiping idols. And that one guy, Phineas, made the, the decision to stick through that one couple. <laughs> uh, what a radical, gross story of the Old Testament. But Lord, we sense in there that um, we need to deal with the mixing of sin uh, in our lives um, harshly. Not literally, our weapons are not literal weapons, but spiritual through the tearing down of strongholds of the enemy. And so I pray that we in prayer and with the sword of the spirit that we would be uh, doing battle against the evil of the enemy that would corrupt. I pray that you'd cause us to hunger and thirst for things that are righteous, Lord. So bless these people as we've taken this time. May it bring good fruit in our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.